The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Here to set you free, and before I start the show, hey there, I'm Leslie Marshall. No judgment, my bags are still stuck in Costa Rica where I went on vacation with my husband and two kids. We got delayed two days, stuck uh, at the hotel, uh, hotel uh, at the airport in Costa Rica, then stuck in Houston, Texas. I don't want to trash an airline on air. I did it already on Twitter. And uh, so anyway, yeah, my bags are still on vacation and uh, I don't have my makeup. I don't have my hair dryer, curling iron, anything. And so this is what you got. Okay. So no judgment. And anybody can tell you that this crappy little camera on uh, my um, uh, computer uh, definitely is not an accurate representation. When you turn on the TV, my TV camera over there, Mark, would you agree? My TV camera's more Oh, yes. Accurate. No yes. doubt. Absolutely. Yes. This is one of those I hate. We need to get me a better camera, Mark. That's yes. What we need to do. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, welcome or welcome back only to Democracy and Talk. I'm Leslie Marshall. We have a great guest joining us to talk about Russia, Ukraine, and the latest on that front, uh, at the front, if you will. Uh, and that is Colonel Cedric Layton, military analyst at CNN, good friend of ours, uh, attained the rank of Colonel and uh, also uh, chairman um, of, is it, it's Sonic, his company is uh, Cedric Layton and Associates, right? Um, we will uh, be there. Mark, whatever you're doing on my computer, uh, you're messing up what I need to do. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, and anyway, let's uh, check what's ripped from those headlines. President Biden today announced Steve Dettelbach as his nominee to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, as well as new plans to regulate so-called ghost guns. Uh, and I just want to men mention Fred uh, Gutenberg, who has been on the program, whose daughter, uh, Jamie, uh, was murdered at Parkland in Florida. He mentioned to the president at the White House yesterday that uh, it was his anniversary and President Biden picked up the phone and called Fred Gutenberg's wife to wish her a happy anniversary because that's what really nice real people do even if they are the commander in chief of the United States of America and leader of the free world. Just wanted to point that out. Anyway, this is why these ghost guns matter. We have gun violence ravaging communities across the nation. So the Biden administration is looking for administrative solutions to address the proliferation of illegal firearms. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a statement, quote, this rule will make it harder for criminals and other prohibited persons to obtain untraceable guns. Ghost guns are assembled at home from buy, build, shoot kits. They've posed a challenge to law enforcement because the guns don't contain serial numbers. It makes them difficult to track. There are about 20,000 suspected ghost guns recovered in criminal investigations just last year alone, according to new data out from the government. Uh, the president announced the new rules during a Rose Garden event yesterday, along with Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. Uh, and that's when he named Delbach, uh, the former U.S. attorney from Ohio, as his second choice to lead the ATF. Last year, in a sign of how contentious 
politics have come uh, around gun regulation, even though overwhelming majority of Americans agree on certain things like universal background checks, uh, the president was forced to pull his first nominee, David Chipman, the former ATF agent and gun control advocate. Chipman was opposed by gun rights groups and Republican senators, and the president was not confident he had the backing from Maine's independent senator, Angus King, who caucuses with the Democrats. The big picture on this is that the president has been looking for opportunities to highlight his approach to addressing increased crime, and he used his State of the Union address to proclaim, proclaim, quote, the answer is not to defund the police. So as part of his 2023 budget plan, the president announced some $30 billion to provide more, not less, more money for law enforcement. So don't believe those that think all Democrats, including the president and this administration, want to defund the police. That's not true. You heard it from his lips and hearing it from mine now. The House last year passed gun control legislation to expand background checks with the aim of closing the loopholes that allowed white supremacist Dylan Roof to purchase a firearm that he used to kill nine worshipers at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The Senate has not acted on this legislation as of yet. So this is what he's saying. Ghost guns are weapons of choice for many criminals, and we're going to do everything we can to deprive them of that choice, quote, the president said during the event yesterday. And the president and the new rule uh, the president put forth, uh, he said it would help save lives, reduce crime, and get more criminals off the street. Let's do a little flashback. Last May, the president's administration announced new rules to require retailers to run background checks before selling firearm kits, uh, which would allow anyone to assemble them at home to make a firearm, like I mentioned earlier. So what do we expect with this action yesterday on Monday? The administration plans to reclassify the key components in gun kits as firearms. And then that allows the government to be able to better track them. The Biden administration also wants local officers to use some of the $1.9 trillion in the COVID relief funds to bolster police department. So they have access to money they can use at the disposal for police departments, $1.9 trillion, trillion with a T. And uh, then, of course, $30 billion more money for law enforcement and then making it easier for law enforcement with the firearm in the gun kit uh, and uh, making uh, it more difficult uh, and easier for law enforcement to be able to track those as it's been in the past. Let's rip another. The economy is on all voters' minds, and whether you're a Democrat or Republican, nobody likes to see inflation. Inflation surged again last month in March. Consumer prices hit yet another fresh peak, not seen in about a generation. Now, the relentless rise in prices is a challenge for investors. Federal Reserve policymakers and politicians are all trying to navigate an inflationary backdrop that hasn't been seen since the early 80s. And Republicans obviously can try and take advantage of that with Democrats in control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. The consumer price index rose 1.2% in March compared to February. That was above economist expectations for 1.1%. Prices up 8.5% over the last year. That's higher than the 8.4% rise. That was what economists expected, according to consensus expectations reported by FactSet. Now, that's the highest annual inflation rate uh, since December 1981. Here are the details. Food, fuel, and shelter costs, key drivers of the upward rise in the overall price rise. Gasoline prices jumped 18.3% from February to March as energy markets reeled from the war in Ukraine, and that accounts for over half of the rise in monthly headline inflation. And so-called core inflation, excluding volatile food and energy prices, it rose 0.3%. 
That's less than the 5% analyst expected. That's good news, right? Prices for used cars and trucks, which were an early driver of post-COVID price increases, fell 3.8% in March. Not good. My husband's looking to unload his car. Uh, Both bond and stock markets rallied after the report, though. And that suggests that investors see the CPI report as a reason to think that battling inflation may require fewer interest rate hikes than they had thought just a few minutes earlier. Let's rip another. Well, also on the minds of some voters is immigration. And GOP candidates from Nevada to Ohio are stepping up attacks on undocumented Latino immigrants, despite warnings the strategy actually may backfire in some general election contest. The rhetoric aims to appeal to white voters aligned with former President Trump who are voting in GOP primaries. But some Republicans say it could alienate the crucial Latino swing voters in November, and that's an area where they have gained ground. Uh, Nevada Republican Senate hopeful Adam Laxalt uh, has spent 13 grand running radio ads in Elko and Las Vegas, touting his opposition to protections for immigrants who were brought to the country as children, commonly known as dreamers. The radio ad touts his tenure as the state's attorney general for suing the federal government and stopping unconstitu- unconstitutional attempts to grant amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants. He's seeking the nomination to run against Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a Democrat, and she is also the nation's first Latina senator. In Ohio, GOP Senate candidate J.D. Vance asked voters in one TV ad, are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? Sadly, the answer would be yes for some people. Uh, The media calls us racist, he says, for wanting to build Trump's wall. They censor us, but it doesn't change the truth. He's the author of the book Hillbilly Elegy, falsely claiming that President Biden supported open borders. He referenced his own mother's heroin addiction by saying, quote, this issue is personal. I nearly lost my mother to the poison coming across this border. The ad drew condemnation from critics who called it racist. And the New Mexico GOP gubernatorial hopeful Rebecca Dow locked in a tough fight in a primary to face Democratic Governor Michelle Jean Grissom. Uh, She released a video of herself riding a horse along the U.S.-Mexico border while promising to fight radical socialists. Quote, I'm not here to put on a show, she said, while surrounded by men in cowboy hats. Sounds like a show to me. I'm here to finish President Trump's wall. Democratic State Senator Antoinette Cedillo Lopez said on Twitter that the ad was full of divisive, hateful rhetoric. Dow said she was a registered descendant of Cherokees who came to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. New Mexico is the state with the largest percentage of Hispanic voters. Voters in the Southwest in recent elections have rejected conservative candidates who have used harsh anti-immigrant language. GOP consultant Mike Madrid told Axios, uh, that very same thing. And Nevada political consultant Alex Odiaz told Axios, quote, I don't know how this will play in Nevada where the Latino population has grown and been more active in voting. That's what's ripped from the headlines part one. We'll be back with part two on the other side of this break after this. And after the next break in the first half of the show with ripped from the headlines, we'll have Colonel Cedric Layton joining us to talk about Russia, Ukraine and all that's going on on that front. I'm Leslie Marshall. Stick around. Hey, you know, the music reminds me, Pink Floyd came out with a new song, and they have one of the uh, biggest and hottest bands lead singer from Ukraine, uh, and it's a, a, a song in support of Ukraine. Marky Mark, maybe we could find that not now, but for uh, Ooh, an, absolutely. Another yeah. on another show. Love My it. husband played it for me uh, yesterday uh, in the car on the way to one of our many attempted flights to come back to Los Angeles, <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, is that a new Pink Floyd song? Right? And he said, yeah. And, oh, uh, terrific. I, I will definitely I do that. that. 
uh, to come out of retirement, semi-retirement or whatever, you know, to support the people of Ukraine. Just just an awesome thing. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Rip from the headlines continues. Uh, this is more with Ripped. The National Urban League's 2022 State of Black America report alleges that some lawmakers, consultants and violent extremists are plotting to disenfranchise, delude, manipulate, and intimidate American voters and establish a one-party rule. And that would work against the interest of people of color, both black and brown voters. The big picture here is the 46th edition of the group's annual report. It was released this morning. It warns that voter suppression and growing income inequality could precipitate the collapse of democracy in the United States. It warns that political forces have launched an all-out assault on voting rights that disproportionately affects the communities that we serve. Quote, democracy is under siege and there's a plot to destroy American democracy. That's what National Urban League president and CEO Mark Morial told reporters on a call ahead of the release. And how, how do we get here? Well, the report says that former President Trump uh, spread misinformation, sowed doubt about the 2020 presidential election, inspired and gave cover for GOP-controlled state legislatures to pursue even more voting restrictions. But it said the modern day effort has been building since the 2008 election swept Barack Obama into the White House and that it accelerated after the Supreme Court Shelby County versus Holder decision. And that was in 2013. And what that decision did was gutted critical provisions of the Voting Rights Act. State legislatures have been restricting voting access in districts with large populations of black Americans, Latinos and Native Americans. And the report used data from the Brennan Center for Justice to make its case. So what does it say by the numbers? The report's equity, excuse me, equality index of black America, it remained relatively stagnant this year, 73.9%. And what that measure does is estimates the share of the pie black Americans get compared to white Americans around economic status, health, education, social justice, and civic engagement, okay? So they get less than three quarters, right? And they get just a little bit more than two thirds of the 100%. Uh, that white uh, Americans uh, get in those areas. Black men's median weekly earnings decreased from 73 to 72% um, of white men's over a year. And the home ownership rate gap also widened, this report found. So the bottom line here is as long as an overhaul of voting rights legislation remains stuck in Congress, the report urges people of color to focus on five steps. One, checking your registration status. Are you registered to vote? If not, make sure you are. Two, Know your state's voter ID laws so that you know what you need to bring if you have to have a picture ID. Three, know where to vote because if you need transportation and it may not be easy to get to where you need to vote, especially if you're in a rural area or you don't drive or you drive but you don't own a car. With gas prices, some people choose or can't afford to use their cars or can't afford a car at all. Four, make a plan to vote, okay, which would include all these things, right? Register to vote. Know your state's voter ID laws. Know where to vote. And last, vote in every election. It's a lovely four-letter word, V-O-T-E. Let's rip another. Two former top officials in the Trump White House have secured billions of dollars from the Saudi government. And that was in the form of investment yep, in their new private equity funds, according to the New York Times. Here's what's driving the news on this story. Jared Kushner's firm, Affinity Equity, they scored a $2 billion commitment from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. So please don't tell me <laughs> that Jews and Muslims or Jews and Arabs hate each other, because when it comes to green, they don't really care what 
you know, who's doing what and what religion you are and who's doing it with who. Let's be honest, okay? Because the Saudis are doing business with Jared Kushner, who's a Jewish man, and Jared Kushner, a Jewish man, is doing business with Arabs who many people out there would say absolutely hate each other, if for nothing else than religion. Not true when it comes to cold, hard cash. The former Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin's Liberty Strategic Capital, well, they secured one billion, it's billions of dollars, folks. Why does this matter? Well, there are massive investments to bestow upon first-time private equity funds. It could also cause complications if President Trump, former President Trump, who is the father-in-law of Jared Kushner, were again to become president. I need a moment after saying that. Uh, PIF investment staff reportedly expressed concerns about Affinity's inexperience in private equity, an area in which Kushner has no personal background, although the firm said that again, he worked at the White House and no personal background in that, although the firm subsequently added some veteran PE pros. Mnuchin made his, uh, his name as an investor before entering public service, albeit not specifically in private equity. Now, Affinity is seeking to raise upwards of $7 billion. It appears to be less than halfway to that target. Its goal is to focus on U.S. growth equity opportunities, and it still has not yet announced any deals. Liberty raised a total of $2.5 billion for its debut fund, recently acquiring a control stake in the Dallas-based enterprise security firm Zipernium. Neither Kushner or Mnuchin. I always say his name wrong. How do you say it, Mark? Mnuchin. It is Mnuchin. I kind of said it right. Uh, responded to requests for comment. I don't know why. There's certain names that trip me up, and that's always been one. Apologies, former Treasury Secretary uh, Mnuchin. Let's rip another. A former police officer who stormed the U.S. Capitol during the January 6, 2021 insurrection has been found guilty on all charges after a trial jury reached a verdict yesterday. Now, why does it matter? Thomas Robertson was fired from his position in Rocky Mount, Virginia, after the riots. He is the second January 6th defendant to take his case to jury. Guy Reffitt was also found guilty on all counts last month. Now, Robertson faces six charges, or faced six charges, including obstruction of an official proceeding, civil disorder, violent entry, disorderly conduct in a Capitol building, and entering and remaining on restricted grounds while carrying a deadly or dangerous weapon. Uh, you know, that tourism with the weapon, I guess Republicans think, and said there weren't any weapons. There were weapons. His lawyer acknowledged that the misdemeanor charges were fair, argued against the felonies, claiming the wooden stick he carried into the Capitol was meant as a walking stick and not a weapon. But prosecutors alleged that Robertson posted in a social media that, quote, we actually attacked the government. The right in one day took the actual, uh, took the effing U.S. Capitol, keep poking us. He also took a photo of himself and another off-duty police officer making an obscene gesture in front of a statue of John Stark in the Capitol building. And the assistant U.S. attorney, Riza Burkauer, said, quote, this defendant gleefully put himself in the thick of the initial round of rioters who set off hours of chaos inside the Capitol. That's what was told to jurors during closing arguments per NBC News, obviously effective because they voted him guilty on all counts. Big picture here, the DOJ has arrested more than 750 people in connection to the Surrection, insurrection. Let's rip another. Less than one in 10 Americans now describe COVID-19 as a crisis, with about three in four calling it a manageable problem. One in six saying no problem at all. That's according to the latest installment of the Axios Ipsos Coronavirus Index. Now, these sentiments and the public's growing desire to be done with mass mandates and other restrictions, it raised significant challenges for public health officials in managing new surges that could create real political headwinds ahead of the midterms. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Coming up, Colonel Cedric Layton's in the House military analyst for CNN talking to us about Russia, Ukraine, and somebody very knowledgeable on this. I always learn 
when I listen to him or watch him, as I hope you're listening and watching, and we'll stick around to hear more from Colonel Cedric Layton back after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. We are back on Leslie Marshall. When I say we, I talk about me along with our guest today, Colonel Cedric Layton, good friend personally of mine, professionally as well. He's founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates. They're a strategic risk and leadership consultancy, and they serve global companies and organizations. He founded it back in 2010, but first, he served in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer, and he attained the rank of colonel. Colonel Layton can also be seen regularly on CNN, where he is, as I mentioned, a military analyst. Check him out and follow him on Twitter. His handle is at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, and his website, CedricLayton.com, same spelling. Uh, Colonel, good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm good to have you as my first guest back from my uh, crazy vacation. And, uh, uh, you know, sadly, uh, I would see bits and pieces of the news internationally. I, I went to Costa Rica uh, with my husband and two kids for uh for a spring break, and uh, just uh, sad to see uh, the continued attacks by Russia uh, on the people of Ukraine. But let's first talk about somebody who's getting a lot of press. A lot of people are talking about this individual, and that is the um, new general that Russia tapped over the weekend, who has significant combat experience in Syria. And they tapped this uh, general to oversee its military option operations in Ukraine, and that's General Alexander V. Dvornikov. Uh, can you speak to us about this uh, general, the new general tapped by Russia to lead the military op operations in Ukraine, Colonel? What what does this pick and this individual say to you about Russia's plans moving forward? Yeah, Leslie, it's good to be with you again. Yeah, General Dvornikov is one of the most experienced officers in the Russian army. In fact, he is a hero of the Russian Federation. Uh, he, uh, it's kind of like uh, in the old days, they had the hero of the Soviet Union award. While this is kind of the successor award, it's a little bit like the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, he got that award for his work in Syria. And the work that he did in Syria uh, was the in essence, the subjugation of the anti-Assad uh, forces uh, that were arrayed as part of the Syrian effort to uh, oust the Bashar al-Assad regime, uh, which of course failed. Well, General uh, Dvornikov is responsible in large measure for the military aspect of what Russia did, uh, and uh, he was quite frankly, successful at it. He uh, is uh, very good at counterinsurgency operations. He's also very good at subjugating civilian populations. And that, I think, is the most important takeaway here, Leslie. Uh, this general is somebody who does not hesitate to use military force against civilian populations. He is not worried about what uh, the Geneva Convention says or what the laws of war say. Uh, but what he is concerned about is uh, preserving and furthering the interests of Russia. And uh, that includes, in his mind, uh, serving Vladimir Putin. So he's a true believer as far as uh, Putinism and, uh, and Vladimir Putin are concerned. Uh, he is someone who has a vast experience, not only in the Syrian civil war, but also in Chechnya and uh, several other military operations that the Russians uh, were involved in, such as in Georgia uh, back in uh, 2008. 
Um, so he uh, is, uh, you know, somebody to be reckoned with. The Ukrainians uh, will have to study him very carefully, and I'm sure they already are doing that. Uh, but you can expect, uh, you know, under his leadership, uh, for there to be more attacks on civilian uh, strongholds and uh, civilian populations. So much that you said, I have so many questions already. One of the things I was reading, Colonel, is that um, the goal with this general is to increase coordination between various units and up until this point that Russian forces have been commanded separately. Uh, what does that mean from a, a military uh, strategy, a strategic standpoint? So one of the principles, Leslie, of military power is something called unity of command. And uh, what that normally means is you have one commander who is responsible for a major effort. Uh, so the war in Ukraine from the Russian standpoint would be a major effort and would have required under normal circumstances for there to be a single commander who would be in charge of that. Uh, it was very interesting to me as a, as a military officer, a former military officer, to uh, see that the Russians did not do that. They did not appoint initially a single commander to run the effort. And instead, what you had were at least three disparate efforts that were going on just from a military standpoint, and that doesn't include some of the efforts that their intelligence services were involved in. Uh, but three disparate efforts without a single unifying military force uh, seem to equal failure or at least stagnation and, and stalemate. Uh, so General Bornikov has been brought in uh, to serve as that unifying commander. It's kind of like what uh, General Petraeus was in Iraq, for example, or in Afghanistan later, uh, more actually in his Afghanistan role. Uh, and you know what we saw back in the first Gulf War with General Schwarzkopf, that was one unifying commander to run the operations in that theater. And the fact that the Russians didn't have somebody like that initially in uh, their uh, their invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, really, uh, I think, not only slowed it down, but spelled um, a, you know, a problem and if not disaster for them around Kyiv. And that's why they had to withdraw their forces in part was because of that, not to mention, of course, the logistical problems and all the other attendant uh, issues of weakness that, uh, that cropped up there. But uh, this unity of command principle is something in the military you don't violate. You have to have one boss, and that has to be somebody who's responsible for the overall effort. And it cannot be a political leader because the political leader is responsible for the politics of the event uh, and for the, leading the nation as a whole, uh, not to be the warrior commander-in-chief like a, you know, a czar of old would have been. Uh, that doesn't work in the modern age. And, uh, you know, Stalin found that out during World War II, and Putin is finding that out now. With the, you know, this also changes where central command comes from, right, or where the commands come from. Uh, Russia has been running its military offensive in Ukraine from Moscow. They've had no central war commander on the ground. How does, what does that telegraph or forecast to you about having a central war commander uh, on the ground now, as opposed to this offensive in Ukraine, uh, having all the shots uh, come from and, and run from Moscow. Right. So Moscow, you know, is uh, we in the military always used to joke about the you know six thousand mile screwdriver or whatever the distance was from Washington to the theater that you're fighting in. Uh, so we had uh, you know probably nine thousand mile screwdrivers when it came to Vietnam, and uh, you know we certainly had uh, you know about uh, seven thousand mile screwdrivers when it came to some of the efforts that we uh, did in the Middle East. In this case. 
Moscow was trying to run uh, this war effort, as you mentioned, and that uh, becomes a problem because you really can't run a war effort if you're not in theater and if you are not uh, in direct communication with subordinate units. Uh, so the fact that they appointed a central commander in this role means that he is going to grab all the reins of, of power when it comes to the military part of this. He will definitely still take direction from Moscow, but everything is supposed to go through him uh, so that he can then uh, get the direction from Moscow and then carry out those orders, but modify them as he needs to uh, from an operational perspective. And then in the ideal world, you know, from their perspective, he would then uh, be allowed to modify things even tactically, and certainly the subordinate commanders should be doing that as well. So it means a much more concentrated war effort, much more focus on getting results, and those results would then uh, lead to better, uh, in theory at least, better performance of the Russian military uh, on the battlefield. Um, you know, there's been a lack of organization. Um, it, you know, there's been a significant number of Russian casualties. Um, and the Pentagon said last Friday that some Russian military units are, quote, almost completely devastated and that it's unclear whether they will ever be reformed. Does appointing this general change that, um, that they, you know, have the devastation of those units, that they have those casualties, that they seem to not have as much equipment that, you know, they had obviously before, and they obviously have an economy in freefall, so they may not have the funding to replenish that uh, military equipment. How does uh, this appointment of this general change that, if at all? Yes, yeah, so that's he's going to have a huge challenge on his hand, Leslie, because uh, under ideal circumstances, he'd be able to change a lot of those things or at least work his way toward changing them. Uh, but the fact of the matter is exactly what you pointed out. Those lost units are lost forever. Those people are dead forever, obviously. And, uh, you know, where you're talking somewhere between 16 to 18,000 potential Russian killed in action, uh, that's a significant portion of their uh, armed forces that were arrayed against Ukraine. And he's uh, going to have a, a large hole to crawl out of. And I think it's going to be very difficult for him in spite of his abilities. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue with Colonel Cedric Layton. We'll talk about no-fly zones. We'll talk about the Geneva Conventions. And we'll talk about uh, West investigating reports of Russian chemical weapons and Maripol. I'm Leslie Marshall. Back with you. Back with the Colonel. Right after this. Don't away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. We welcome back Colonel Cedric Layton, founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, and also a former U.S. Air Force uh, colonel and with the in, as an intelligence officer for nearly 30 years. Seen on CNN as a military analyst on Twitter. Please follow him at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. His website, CedricLayton.com, the same spelling. Colonel, thank you for holding a welcome back. I had mentioned before the break uh, that I was going to ask um, a couple of things, and one is about a no-fly zone. Uh, the president says that's not going to happen. President Zelensky keeps asking not only us and our NATO allies for that. Um, as somebody who has the experience that you do with the military, Colonel, um, is a no-fly zone, a no to a no-fly zone, the right way to go? 
from your experience militarily with this particular situation, specific situation in Ukraine? Yes. So my experience uh, extends to the no-fly zones we had over Iraq, uh, Leslie, before uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom started. And those are very resource intense uh, events actually for an air force that is enforcing a no-fly zone. And in some ways it was easier to do, in many ways actually, it was easier to impose a no-fly zone over Iraq for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, the Iraqi air force was not anywhere near the strength or the capacity of the Russian air force. Uh, secondly, um, we controlled the skies over Iraq. Uh, we had fought a war in Desert Storm that, uh, in, in essence, shut down the Iraqi Air Force. Uh, we would have to do something similar uh, to the Russian Air Force, or they would have to agree not to fly in that area for it to be a valid no-fly zone. Or uh, the last corollary to that would, would be that we would uh, realize that we would have to shoot down Russian aircraft anytime they violated the provisions of a no-fly zone. So if the Russians don't agree to something like that uh, and they start flying against Ukraine and we start shooting them down, it could very rapidly escalate into a uh, completely different situation. So, uh, you know, of course, when President Biden first spoke about the no-fly zone uh, and uh, President Zelensky was asking for one, we did not know that the Ukrainian Air Force uh, was going to survive up to until at least this point, uh, and uh, the Russians were not going to be able to achieve what's known as air supremacy or even air superiority over uh, the Ukrainian territory. Uh, so there is something that can be done that isn't exactly a no-fly zone, but it is the provisioning of uh, air defense assets, high-altitude air defense assets that can go after uh, high-level and high-altitude targets. Uh, that would include the S-300 system, which is uh, a Russian-made system, but some NATO nations like Slovakia actually have the S-300 in their in their inventory, in their arsenal. And uh, so the move now is to move that from uh, an S-300 system from Slovakia into Ukraine, backfill the Slovakian S-300 system with the U.S.-made Patriot system, and let the Ukrainians have the S-300 because they know how to operate it, they've been trained on it, they actually have uh, systems like that, and that would serve to augment uh, the Ukrainian air defense structure. Um, air defense is a, a pretty arcane uh, set of uh, radars and missiles uh, that are all kind of lashed together along with intelligence feeds uh, designed to protect a country's airspace. So really what uh, President Zelensky uh, wants is a a uh, very robust air defense architecture that is going to shoot anything out of the sky that he deems uh, to be a hostile uh, hostile threat. And that's that's the kind of thing that he should be looking for. Saying it's a no-fly zone is uh, actually technically not correct, although it you know sounds good, of course, when you you know when you talk about it in the press. Uh, but that's that's the reason not to have a no-fly zone is it's a, it's a very intricate, very tough thing to enforce if the other side is not willing to abide by those rules. You know, uh, behind closed doors, Democrats and Republicans agree pretty much almost 100 percent on uh, how what we're doing and how we're doing uh, handling the situation uh, with Ukraine, with our allies and the leadership of President Biden. But of course, we have midterms coming up. So on center stage, we have Republicans uh, criticizing uh, the president, saying the United States is leading from behind, saying we're not doing enough to help Ukraine. And we're seeing some of that affected in the polls uh, among voters. Uh, with your military expertise, 
uh, and you having absolutely no fist in this political fight in the midterms. How are we, the United States, doing with regard to Ukraine, specifically President Biden, this administration? Are we leading from behind? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Have we done enough? Should we do more? And if so, what? Sure. So uh, I think that one of the key things that's in the positive column for President Biden is the fact that he, so far, has been able to get the 30 nations of the NATO alliance together to speak with what amounts to one voice on this issue. And that includes countries like Hungary, where they just had uh, their election and elected a fairly pro-Putin or re-elected a fairly pro-Putin prime minister in, in the form of Viktor Orban. Uh, so that is a major achievement for the Biden administration because they uh, were able to pull together an alliance that uh, his predecessor, President Trump, wanted frankly, to leave. It was pretty clear that uh, that uh, Trump did not believe NATO uh, served any useful purpose. Uh, fact of the matter is NATO continue, has and continues to have a very useful purpose in uh, securing peace for its members. Uh, one thing that could have happened is, uh, you know, when you look back at uh, the run-up to this invasion, uh, if uh, President Biden had been, uh, you know, of that mindset where uh, he was going to take some more risk. He could have potentially put a unit like the 82nd Airborne, or at least portions of the 82nd Airborne, into Kyiv before uh, the invasion started. We certainly had ample warning that the invasion was going to come. But the, the fact of the matter is that Ukraine is and was not a NATO member. Uh, there is no treaty obligation that requires that kind of a, uh, you know, a manifestation of our force in that country. Uh, it would have been a risky move, uh, knowing what would it have. Colonel, start. Sorry to interrupt. Would it have prevented, in your opinion, the invasion? It, I think it would have. Yeah. Really? Uh, and the reason, yeah, I, I think so because that would have kind of shocked the Russians. Uh, now, the other side of that is, you know, at least let's put it this way: it would have initially prevented it. So, on the twenty fourth of February, the invasion would not have happened. What happened? What would have happened on, let's say, the first of March, though, might have been another story. So it was. It would have been a very risky thing to do. Uh, in essence, we would have been calling Putin's bluff, uh, saying, you know, hey, uh, we're going to protect this country uh, because of being in Ukraine because of its democratic values, and we're going to stand up for the democracies that we can stand up for. And Ukraine happens to be one of them. If we, you know, if we had gone that way. Um, the the problem that you run into, though, is just from a, you know, if you look at the map, uh, it would have been, and, you know, not knowing how uh, badly postured the Russian forces really were, it would have been very risky because, uh, you know, if you look at uh, what was arrayed against Ukraine from the north and from the east, uh, you would have seen major Russian forces uh, that, uh, you know, could have overwhelmed, in theory, at least on paper, could have overwhelmed anything that's out there. The other thing to think about is that, uh, you know, you want to be careful when you do these kinds of things not to fall into the, a trap of Russia's making in this case because the Russians are looking at, uh, at any way that they can to entangle us in some kind of a conflict with them. So it's uh, there's a game of brinksmanship that, that goes on here, and that becomes a really difficult thing to manage in, in this case. You talked about, you mentioned the Geneva Conventions, international, you know, war, uh, international law, and it would seem to me, and I'm not a Geneva Convention international war military expert, 
Um, you pretty much are, though. So isn't Russia in violation already? I mean, even if there are not chemical weapons uh, being chemical or biological weapons being used or prepared to being used by Russian forces, as we're hearing, uh, just with the shooting of civilians, if in, if if that is the fact uh, there, we know they have shot civilians. That That is not a question. Um, yeah. What, yeah. what is being done about it? What can be done about it? Quickly, because I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, absolutely, Leslie. So the, yes, the Russians are in violation of the Geneva Convention and uh, international law in general. Uh, so what that means is that they have committed crimes, they've committed war crimes against civilian populations. And under the laws of war, there is an absolute prohibition on deliberately targeting civilians and you know killing them or even wounding them. Uh, and certainly they also cannot take them prisoner and ship them off to other areas of, of Russia like they're doing with, uh, you know, with, with some of their, their camps. So this becomes a really big issue. The Russians are in violation of, of international law and the Geneva Convention. Uh, the, to punish them is going to require, uh, in essence, the toppling of the Putin regime if, if we want to get at them fairly quickly. Uh, that uh, that is something that, of course, requires a lot of investigative work, uh, and it also requires the Russian people uh, to rise up against Putin, which is not going to happen if they don't know uh, what is really going on in Ukraine. And uh, the fact of the matter is that Putin has controlled all the levers of the press. He's muzzled it in such a way that uh, real information is not getting out, and the, the whole population is the victim of a major disinformation campaign. Yep, it's a proper Putin's propaganda machine, right? Uh, Colonel, thank you for joining us. Colonel Cedric Layton, uh, he is uh, president and founder of Cedric Layton Associates. Follow him on Twitter at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Website, CedricLayton.com. And uh, thank you. You know, I love you. Thank you. And uh, I'm Leslie Marshall. Appreciate it. Thank you to Marky Mark Maldi, our executive producer.